Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Happy Friday. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. Yes, yes. We made it through another week. We did it. And uh, it feels so holiday vibes. You know, it's kind of cold here. I got my scarf on and a sweater. You know, when people from L.A. talk about the code and it's not really that code and you to know that you have a scarf on in your house and it's probably what, like 60 degrees outside. Ridiculous. Oh, it's 70 in here. Embarrassing. And you're from Canada. You're from Montreal. You're. I know everyone is just listening to this being like, are you kidding me? Not a good Canadian, I guess. Sorry. No, you're supposed to be able to handle this. Isn't everything out there made out of igloos? Oh, yes, totally. You got it, Ryan. God, how dare you generalize my country? <laughs> You don't get what you're talking about. Anyway, all right, we've got a great show coming up. Oscar-nominated director, producer, and director of the documentary on kindness called The Antidote, Connie Cooperman is joining us. Let me tell you, just the trailer had me crying, uh, and it's a really powerful documentary, including right now. It's it's really what we all need to be watching. Also, Shira is emotionally unstable, so don't take her your, her word for it. I pro- but it is good. I will say it is very, very good. So you can take my word for it. Okay. Plus, can BDSM help you manage feeling out of control during the pandemic? Possibly. We've got a sex therapist joining us to help us navigate that conversation. Well, it's an interesting show. Let's get started. As you say, we've got range. Okay, yes, let's get into what's trending this hour. VP Mike Pence spoke today in Georgia, continuing the fight over the election and fraud, and also to promote the Georgia Republicans competing in the Senate runoff elections January 5th. We're going to keep fighting until every legal vote is counted. We're going to keep fighting until every illegal vote is thrown out. And we will never stop fighting to make America great again. That's why President Trump and I need David Perdue and Kelly Leffler back in the Republican majority in the United States Senate. Now, this is smart because, uh, you know, this is what they need to do. They need people like Trump and Pence out there telling people in Georgia to vote for these folks because there's other people that are starting conspiracy theories telling people not to vote because it's just going to be a fraud. Oh, my goodness. Right? So it's hard to know how this is going to end up shaking out. But I do believe that Kamala Harris and Biden should also be heading to Georgia. If they want to win the Senate, we need to get people out there voting for uh, you know the Democrats over there. This is a, a, still a big race. Now let's move on to the House of Representatives. They voted in favor of removing marijuana from the Federal Controlled Substances Act. The MORE Act decriminalizes cannabis and clears the way to erase nonviolent federal marijuana convictions. But according to NBC News, the Senate is unlikely to approve the bill. But this move is really historic as it's the first time a full chamber of Congress has taken up the issue of federally decriminalizing cannabis i mean this is a huge moment for the movement right and yeah i think we're getting uh, and we're inching step uh, closer to seeing that completely uh, decriminalized which is awesome mm-hmm now, according to CNN, President-elect Joe Biden's margin over President Trump in the nationwide popular vote is now more than 7 million votes and may continue to grow as several states continue counting votes. Biden's lead over Trump is the second largest since 2000 and is about two and a half times larger than Hillary Clinton's popular vote lead over Trump in 2016. And as of this morning, Biden had won about 81.2 million votes, the most votes a candidate has won what? in U.S history wow 
And uh, Trump had 74.2 million. Trump's vote count makes him the second highest vote earner in American history. So really, this election was historic. Yeah, I mean, say that about every election, but it really was. No, but this one for sure was just because this is like, what, the 18th thousand time that Biden has won again? (laughs) In that way, too. Right. Yeah. And still amidst all these numbers coming out. President uh, Trump still refuses to concede the race and continues to make baseless claims about widespread voter fraud. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so let's talk about Black Panther. So uh, this is the T-Report, those pop culture moments that are trending right now. And Letitia Wright is facing backlash on Twitter after tweeting a link to a YouTube video that contained some misinformation and falsehoods about the COVID-19 vaccination. Now, the now-deleted tweet led to the Black Panther star's name quickly trending on the site. She said, I won't link to the hour um, long video by a subscribed prophet here, but just know that it starts by saying, I don't understand vaccines medically, but I've always been a little bit of a skeptic of them. So she was questioning and having some a lot of anti-vax rhetoric. And also that video had some transphobic elements as well. And so people were like, are you kidding me? What is going on here? Um, even Don Cheadle, uh, Letitia's Marvel co-star, got involved after initially defending her, saying, Jesus, just scroll through hot garbage. Every time I stopped and listened, he and everything he said crazy um, and effed up. Well, it sounded crazy and effed up, and I would never defend anybody posting this, but I still won't throw her away over it. The rest I'll take off Twitter. And to be honest, you know, if you don't remember her from Black Panther, she plays as uh, Chadwick Boseman's sister. She was really smart. Oh, uh, she was yeah. also in a couple Black, uh, Black, what's that show? Black Mirror episodes on Netflix. And so it was just shocking to know that, one, she's like an anti-vaxxer, but then also she was very defensive where she was going back and forth and she tweeted about getting canceled saying, if you don't conform to popular opinions, but ask questions and think for yourself, dot, 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 you get canceled with a laughing emoji. And people were like, are you kidding me? How dangerous of a platform that you have? You're a famous Marvel character and you're over there questioning science. Like, what is happening here? I mean, um, well, she is in Hollywood and, and uh, I don't know if she's an Angelino or New Yorker, but she's a UK. She's this- British, actually. She's in the UK. Well, okay. So there is this group. And we're going to see more of this as this continues that are going to speak out against the vaccine. And it's going to be interesting to see what goes down. Well, that's your tea report. And I got more coming up next hour. Okay, coming up, McConnell and Pelosi finally met and supposedly had a good conversation. What that actually means about a new stimulus uh, before 2021. The Washington Post senior editor Mark Fisher joins us for those answers next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It seems like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are back at the negotiating table for a coronavirus relief bill. So will we finally be seeing something by the end of the year? Well, back with us is the senior editor of The Washington Post, Mark Fisher. Happy Friday. Thanks for being here. It was great to be with you. So why was McConnell so against this $908 billion bipartisan spending bill? It seemed like it was in a good place to move forward. Well, you know, in part, he was against it because it was coming from the Democrats. In part, he was against it because uh, he's uh, against the whole idea of stimulus checks. Um, but uh, it, there is this interesting kind of moderate group, both among Democrats and Republicans, who are uh, desperately trying to reach some kind of a deal before Congress breaks up and goes on their extended holiday, which they're going to do this year, as they always do. Uh, and that's just about a week away. So they really have very little time. And there's still some major sticking points, namely uh, that uh, the idea that uh, this bill, as it's written right now, would not include new stimulus checks of $1,200 for every American, uh, like the last deal did. It would have the uh, PPP uh, program, which was the support for small businesses, even though a lot of that money did end up going to big businesses, but leaving that <laughs> aside, it is going to have that, but it's not going to have the individual aid for uh, people across the country who are starved for cash. Well, Mark, McConnell described his discussion with Pelosi as we had a good conversation. What is the definition of that? Because if we're not coming out of here with the stimulus package for the Americans suffering, then how is that a good conversation? 
Well, from what Pelosi said uh, today, uh, it, it does seem that they are heading toward a deal. And she, she seemed pretty optimistic based on that conversation. Uh, you have to understand, over the last months, they have spoken hardly at all. Um, I mean, there's been a really deep freeze between Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. That's changing now, in part because of the prospect of a new administration coming in, but also because of the desperate need, the, the way this virus is surging across the country, uh, the lack of resources in states and cities that have lost a lot of revenue in the pandemic. Uh, and so there's there's tremendous need among businesses, individuals. This deal would provide money for schools, for childcare, for hunger, for rental assistance. So there's a lot in there. It's not nearly as big as last time. Uh, and uh, it's running up a lot against a lot of opposition from Republicans who are suddenly discovering uh, that uh, they're conservative again after four years of amnesia <laughs> that and don't want to uh, spend big money. Yeah, so interesting. Senior editor of the Washington Post, Mark Fisher, joins us right now. So where are, are you hearing things are going to land at this point? I mean, it seems like there needs to be some sort of deal in the next week or so. That's right. And uh, you're seeing uh, opposition is coalescing on both sides. So among conservative Republicans, you're getting more and more of them saying they're not going to vote for this because they think it's too expensive and they don't think that cities and states should be getting that money. And then among uh, more left-wing Democrats, you're seeing opposition. Bernie Sanders just came out against it. Uh, a number of the uh, members of the, the, the sort of progressive wing in the House have come out against it because they say it's not nearly large enough because it's too geared toward business and not toward right. individuals uh, and because it includes that liability shield which will protect businesses against lawsuits related to the coronavirus uh, which hmm. is something a lot of progressives don't want. So there's a lot in there that's going to make a lot of people unhappy. But I think in the end, they're going to have to do something. Yeah, because that's my thing is, it, do you think this is going to be a good thing if we don't end up getting like the stimulus package or some what a, a lot of the progressive Democrats are saying and speaking out against? Um, is this going to hurt Joe Biden and the Democrats kind of moving forward if they're not pushing hard enough for what we need? Well, no, I don't think it. I mean, this is a deal that would uh, be made under the Trump administration. Uh, looks like the president would sign it. Um, he's going to maybe make some noise uh, about getting some things in there that he wants. But uh, I don't think this affects what Biden does because uh, in a couple months or whenever uh, it comes time to require another stimulus plan, uh, he's going to go for something bigger. And yeah. whether he has the ability to do that will depend in large part on whether he has control of the Senate, which we'll find out on January 5th. Do you think the uh, divisive nature of this administration and this process, how hard it was and challenging it was, will help Biden's uh, administration moving forward in terms of the learnings. Maybe this will bring people together more quickly uh, since they saw the repercussions of not moving as quickly this time. Well, I, I mean, it would be lovely to think that. And, uh, you know, we're certainly in a moment where some people have uh, some, some new optimism, but I wouldn't go nearly that far. I don't think uh, there's any uh, learning curve here for either Democrats or Republicans. They remain at loggerheads on so many things. And uh, if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, I think McConnell will have the same attitude toward Biden that he did toward Obama, which was he will do whatever it takes to subvert any progress uh, to, to his number one goal will be to make this president a failure. And uh, we saw in the Obama administration that he did a pretty good job of uh, being that obstacle, uh, which then pushed Obama into taking a lot of executive actions. And now that's become the main tool of the presidency through Obama, Trump, and uh, presumably that will be true for Biden as well. All right. Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Have a great weekend. Coming up on the show, Biden attended the LGBT TQ Leaders Conference today. His big announcement next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. The International LGBTQ Leaders Conference is the largest gathering of LGBTQ elected officials in the world and took place virtually uh, today. President-elect Biden shared this. Vice President-elect Harris and I are committed to being the most pro-equality administration in history. But we can't do it without you. And we can't do it without my dear friend, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy, congratulations on receiving the Victor Institute's History Maker Award. You deserve it. Three decades in Congress, always on the right side of LGBTQ history, always. And the fact that you can receive a History Maker Award 
for that and so much more is testament to your character, Nancy. And now joining us is Vice President of the LGBTQ Victory Institute, Ruben Gonzalez. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Shira. It's great to be here with you all. Yeah, we love what the work you do, obviously. And this whole uh, conference is a big deal. What was the importance of a moment like this with President-elect Biden today? Well, it was a huge moment. This is the first time that President-elect Biden has addressed an LGBTQ audience since becoming, um, since winning the election. And so it was a huge deal for victory, but I think also a big deal for the new administration. President-elect Biden and President, Vice President-elect Harris have committed to having the most diverse and the most pro-equality administration in the history of our country. And President-elect Biden restated that during our conference today. And that's so interesting, right? Because I think a lot of the narrative around this past election was people were voting to get Trump out. And I believe that people were really voting for change. And what we saw was so many, you know, queer people being elected into office. What is the Victory Institute going to kind of do to make sure to hold the Biden-Harris administration kind of accountable to what they're saying? Like, how are you going to work with them in that way? Well, at Victory, we believe that representation matters and that having LGBTQ people at decision-making tables makes a difference in how policy is made and what policies come out of an administration. So what we're doing already is working with the Biden-Harris transition team to put forth a list of qualified LGBTQ people who can serve at all levels of the government, from the cabinet all the way down to um, some entry-level positions. We want to see LGBTQ people serving in every agency at all levels. And we know that when they are there at decision-making tables, they will change how policies are made. And our community will be reflected, our community's voice, our community's needs, um, they will be reflected in that. Over the last four years, we've seen a real rollback of rights and protections for our community, especially uh, the transgender community during the Trump administration. And we want to make sure that the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration, um, restore some of those protections and rights for the LGBTQ community. Definitely. It feels like, in a sense, we could all breathe for a moment right now. Right. It just like feels like there's we're more at peace since the election, at least, even though there's a lot. Still I mean, going on, a lot honey, Ruben is in Palm Springs right now looking fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. We are uh, we, 103.1 FM. Uh, let, yeah. Channel Q's in Palm Springs. So shout out to our fam there. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking to, again, the vice president of the LGBTQ Victory Institute, Ruben Gonzalez. It's the 10-year anniversary of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and U.S. Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi received the LGBTQ Victory Institute's LGBTQ History Maker Award wow. for her successful effort to repeal the legislation. Was it, what is it like for you to look back on the past decade? Well, Speaker Pelosi has been such an ally to our community. She has been at the at the of all of our fights, um, fighting with us on behalf of protections for our community. And she was instrumental in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell 10 years ago. That changed the way that our uh, community members could serve our country. There are so many um, people that believe in our country, that love our country, and that want to serve in the armed services. And not being able to do that out and proudly made a huge difference in their lives. And so Speaker Pelosi, we can't be indebted enough to her leadership, but also the leadership of President Obama, the leadership of LGBTQ activists, uh, the leadership of LGBTQ people who are serving in the military and, and doing that and fighting from the inside as well. So we're grateful for all those people and paid tribute to all of them during this conversation today, but did start out the event with an award to Speaker Pelosi for her, for her leadership and really kind of putting herself on the line. She considers that one of the sort of hallmarks of her career as a member of Congress. And so we're really proud to stand with her and to celebrate with her today. But Sherry, I wanted to also talk about, you said it feels like we're able to take a breath right now. And I agree with you. And one of the things that keeps me breathing more easily on sort of looking out towards the Biden-Harris administration is knowing that we are going to have qualified people serving in the administration. And all these rules that impact our daily lives will be looked at by qualified people. I think that that's something we can all agree on probably this uh, no matter where you kind of lie on the partisan scale, that there are a lot of unqualified people in the Trump administration. And we're excited to put uh, put forward a lot of qualified LGBTQ people, people that have served in their states, people that have served in other areas of government and are ready to serve the country in a really strong way. Yeah, and the conference is going, it started yesterday, but it's going into this Saturday. Tell us what right. else we can expect. Like what else is going on? Because obviously it seems jam-packed. Well, the LGBTQ Leaders Conference is the largest gathering of LGBTQ elected and appointed officials anywhere in the world. So it's a it's a really kind of neat place. If you are a policy or a political nerd, it's a really kind of fun place to be. Yeah. And I, yeah. I need to go find my husband. I need to go find my husband. You can find a husband there. You can find a wife. You can find anything there. It's great. Um, and it's a lot of fun. And so it's, uh, you know, 
we are using some virtual platforms to connect. And I honestly had a little bit of suspicion around how are these going to work? Are people going to actually enjoy kind of meeting face-to-face using a virtual platform? And they did. They showed up last night. We had about 100 people for our leading in color reception. Wow. We're bouncing around virtually from table to table, uh, introducing themselves. Tonight, we have a Women Out to Win event that's getting started in about, uh, I think, about 6.30 uh, Eastern time. So if anybody wants to join that, it's going to be a great event celebrating women in, uh, in office. But I've been really impressed how, how much people have wanted to network. I think people need this. People want us to see each other. Amazing. Yes. That was uh, the vice president of the LGBTQ Victory Institute, Ruben Gonzalez. Thank you so much. You're great. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, what makes someone charismatic? We break down what the experts are saying next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. What makes someone charismatic? Well, experts have broken it down to five things. Okay, so before we get into these five things, though, Mm -hmm. off the top, do you think you're a charismatic person? To be honest, I think sometimes I am. Sometimes I feel like I'm on it. I own the room. I could be the life of the party or like, you know, uh, people can be drawn to me. And I'm not sure if that means it's because I'm charming. And this is really weird now. I'm or talking if you're about a myself. narcissist. Yeah, is that to no, say? No, no, wait. That's Sounds like you're nar- a narcissist no. now. <laughs> no, you're, you can have self-awareness. But I also feel sometimes I feel so off. I don't feel like being in front of people. I don't feel like speaking. I feel like being quiet, like a bit of an introvert sometimes too. So I feel like it's uh, sometimes I'm there and sometimes I'm not. You? Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, I think I am naturally charismatic, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think people realize the kind of ends in your brains, the uh, insecurities that one feels because a charismatic person isn't showing that off the jump. They're not showing you their insecurities or their awkwardness immediately sometimes, right? And I think I have to agree with you. And also there's a... Uh pros and cons of the charisma, right? Because there's some people that are charismatic. And in this article from Mike.com, they talk about this, like there's the Trump charisma and then there's the Biden or charisma, mm. or you could say the Obama one. I would I would lean more towards Obama. Uh, so Jokin Menges, who's a leadership scholar at the University of Zurich in Cambridge uh, Judge Business School, said that, yeah, they display these five behaviors. First, they oppose the status quo. They're not happy with how things are right now. They want a, a better future. They have a vision for a better future, which is really interesting. Mm. And so we're attracted to people like that, right? Because we all want to follow that. We don't want to be part of that. Yeah. And I think it, I think there has to be something about it that feels authentic. Someone actually speaking one from experience of knowing that, Hey, they relate to people who have been down in the dumps and like, haven't had the best life and they see a future where they can have that. And if they're achieving that, then I think that gives people to look forward to being like, wow, they were able to do it. So I can. So it's kind of inspirational in a way. Well, that actually connects to one of the other things, Ryan, which is they employ a predictable set of tactics in their speeches. So in their mm. storytelling, right? They use metaphors, stories, anecdotes. Which oh, is Joe like, Biden loves a good story, girl. Yeah, he'll, exactly. He'll talk about him going fishing or something or like an apple pie for like six hours. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they actually talked about Biden's depiction of the pandemic's toll with an empty chair at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. So you could say that you could use these type of tactics, but also you could say your own experiences and authenticity is that as well. So they also found that these leaders are courageous. They break convention. Um, and unfortunately, he cites Trump in this way as well, because Trump at the time, you know, with his tweets, for an example, or in in his marketing tactic of who he was, it was that he was going against the status quo. Of course, I feel like that's the negative side of the charismatic leader. There's a lot of people that have done this in the positive way. Um, They also have optimism in the face of adversity. We see that on both sides as well in terms of Trump claiming trade wars are Mm -hmm. easy to win and Biden saying we can beat the pandemic, which is fascinating how it can work on both sides as well. Yeah, it really is. I think it's that good versus evil situation. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that I loved um, that this article really on Mike.com points out is even about how Kamala Harris and her DNC Mm. speech and how it had like this 60% probability of having a charismatic effect higher than Biden or Trump speeches. And that's kind of like people's consistent with, you know, people's perception of her. And I think she's a highly charismatic person, right? And I think um, when you see someone like that and you see someone reaching the masses in the way that she is and even Joe Biden is, it just 
just, I don't know, it, it feels like it's, um, it rubs off. It's kind of infectious in a way, right? It makes people want to hear you and see you. We'll try it out, you know, see if it works. Let us know at <laughs> LGT Show. <laughs> uh, we want to hear how your journey goes. Okay, coming up, we've got what's trending this hour. Fauci has accepted Biden's offer to serve as chief medical advisor. What he had to say right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, producer-director Kahani Cooperman of the Antidote documentary out now joins us to talk about what she learned about the current state of kindness across this country. Plus, one journalist joins us to talk about the secret LGBTQ plus society at the Evangelical Liberty University. Ooh, that is a wild story uh, on The Guardian that mm-hmm. I just can't believe and I'm so ready to break it all down because... So interesting. It is. So stay tuned for that and more coming up on the show. But let's get into some what's trending this hour right now. Top infectious diseases expert Dr. Anthony Fauci said today that he has accepted President-elect Joe Biden's offer to serve as his chief medical advisor. He also said when he spoke to you, he asked you to continue in your role, which you've had under six presidents, but also to serve as his chief medical advisor. Uh, Will you do that? Did you say yes? Oh, absolutely. I said yes right on the spot. Yeah. Now, he will continue serving as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, a role he has held through six presidential administrations, while also leading the country's efforts against the coronavirus pandemic. Ivanka Trump took to Twitter yesterday to accuse the D.C. Attorney General's office of being out to get her as they questioned her as part of the investigation into the overpayment of inauguration funds to the Trump International Hotel in 2017. And now D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine is pushing back. He went on Rachel Maddow's show last night to basically put Ivanka on blast. I want to emphasize a couple of points. Uh, And I think that uh, with all due respect to uh, Ivanka Trump, uh, what she put out today was highly misleading uh, and at best only a part of the story. For example, Rachel, she makes a lot of an email wherein she claims that she directed the foundation to pay market rate for the Trump Hotel. That email was dated December 14th. Days after that email, there was clearly an attempt to pay a lot more than the market price. Stephanie Walkoff uh, sent emails, including to Ivanka Trump, raising alarms about the prices that the Trump Hotel was seeking to charge the inauguration committee. All right. I'm sure this is not the last we will hear of this story. Oh, no, not at all. Yep. Now, Kellyanne Conway, former advisor and White House counselor to President Trump, acknowledged that Joe Biden has won, that he's the apparent winner of the presidential race in an interview that aired today. Conway spoke to the 19th, which is a publication, and said, quote, if you look at the vote totals in the Electoral College tally, it looks like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will prevail. I assume the electors will certify that and it will be official. We as a nation will move forward because we always do. She did acknowledge that the president is continuing to exhaust all of his legal (laughs) avenues to challenge the results and said it was, though, his right to do so. I love that that word exhaust. Um, But also, she doesn't work for him anymore. So she's not on his payroll. And the fact that she can uh, honestly speak the truth at this point probably feels relieving to her. Yeah, but remember, Bill Barr is still on his payroll and he's still spoken out and he has been his longest and strongest ally. Yeah, very true. The writing's on the wall here. Okay, that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we got a specialty report happening because you probably don't even know who this YouTube star is, but she is the Ariana Grande lookalike from the Thank You Next video. Her name is Gabby DiMartino. Now, Shira, I know you're familiar with her because she has a twin sister, right? Uh, yes, they've been on uh, my show. I've interviewed them before in the past before. Of course, let's go there. Yep. 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 Well, um, Gabby is having to apologize for once again, uh, apologize once again for allegedly hawking a naked childhood video of herself on OnlyFans, pricing it at just three dollars. It's this is a strange story. So apparently mm-hmm. she's uh, I guess OnlyFans has a special feature in the messages where they can like 
make you buy like other content regardless of the the subscription that you pay and she was like trying to post this video talking about won't put on my pant I uh, won't put my panties on is what she captioned it and people were like what is this and it ended up being literally um a video where she stumbled across the home video in which her grandma tells her then three-year-old self to put your panties back on uh DiMartino says that the video has brought laughter and joy to her family for years so she decided to share it with her 3.24 million subscribers uh she said I shared it with that what I thought was a funny caption. Um, it's not funny, she further explains. Here is what she said in a, a new uh, YouTube video that she just dropped, uh, basically apologizing and addressing the issue. Never in a million years did I think something that I thought was so innocent could be looked in such an ugly way. And I think that's where the problem lies. I realized I'm so disattached with reality that it didn't even cross my mind that this could be viewed like this. And that's a serious issue. It's not funny. It will never be funny. And it's not okay. And I'm really sorry. I'm sorry to my friends, my fans, my family, to anyone that I've hurt. I'm so truly sorry. Yeah, so I don't know what she was thinking. This is just a weird... Uh, is she someone that would do something like this here? Like, what? how did you know her? She's always been one of the sisters because they're twins. She's always been the one that has pushed the boundaries. Like, from, yeah, her getting a lot of work done to, quote-unquote, look like Ariana Grande. She definitely... Uh, post and I'm not shaming her for this. She could own it. She's beautiful, but like definitely post more revealing pictures than her other sister. Uh, so yeah. Wait, are they born? Are they twins? Yeah, yeah they're, they're twins. twins. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I always they're thought, twins. Um, they're actually born. I think the same day as me. Well, I anyway. don't know. She needs to be careful. <laughs> not that cause... that matters. But yeah, this is like it, it's not surprising. It's uh, she's definitely like the the has the other side of the twin character, right? Like. Oh, she, she's ones. like more of the the troublemaker in some yes. sense. Well, she's yes, a mess because the fact that she's been a, she's being accused of distributing child pornography is just not something that you want to be a part of your history search when people get like Google your name. Um, but if you want to know more about that, head over to WeirdChannelQ.com because it is a crazy story and the video is just as crazy. And yeah, that's the tea report. Just shows, yeah, some of these people have, don't have anyone around them to give them any sort of input. It seems. Oh, not at all. For real. Okay, coming up, how can you be LGBTQ plus at an evangelical university? We're getting into that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. How can you be LGBTQ plus at an evangelical university? Well, journalist Su Yoon dove into this topic, telling stories of those who are forced to keep their queer identity secret while attending Liberty University. She joins us right now. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Yeah, you too. What did you find yeah. out when you were doing this story, why queer people were deciding to go to Liberty? Like, what was attracting them to that? Well, I mean, a lot of people t I spoke with were from, were a lot of people were homeschooled from the South. So they, they were pretty sheltered to begin with. They mm -hmm. didn't, they weren't exposed to a lot of people outside their homes that were mostly Christian. They weren't uh, exposed to a lot of gay people. And they're, they're from Christian homes. So they, the idea was that they would go to a Christian university some people, you know, and a lot of these kids are young when they're deciding and like they had older siblings who went there or, or a family that worked there. And one, I think people just weren't really sure or confident about their sexuality at that age, 16, 17, 18 years you're learning, especially if you don't have a vocabulary of like lived experience and seen or, exactly. or heard from other pe people. And also there were people who knew and I think they wanted to go there because they were deeply Christian. That's all they'd known. And they were hoping it would keep them British, you know, like that they wouldn't stray, that they wouldn't have opportunity to go out in the world and be and be gay. At Liberty University, students have to sign an honor code called the Liberty Way. Yeah. What does that include? I mean, it's everything from a dress and a behavior code. You don't drink alcohol when you're there. And it's not just when you're on campus. Like, you you know, you don't drink alcohol out in the world, which is one of the reasons people are upset with Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, one of the students I talked to came in in 2016. That was the first year women were allowed to wear leggings. Oh, my goodness. Um, and they still have like RAs who might say to you, you know, wear a longer shirt, cover your butt. They say modest is hottest, right? There. You know, it's very, it's still a very conservative place. And you can't have guests of an opposite sex in your room. So like you might have like a dorm set up where there's like a common area, you know, common area, but like you wouldn't have, you know, you, if you're dating, you wouldn't have your boyfriend in your dorm room ever. So, you know, in a lot of ways that kind of made people realize that they were attracted to people of the same sex and also kind of made it easier to hide in some ways because everything was single sex. Anything in there that specifically says that you can't be with someone of the same sex? 
So they, they walk a very fine line, which is similar to what the Catholic Church at least used to be, which is that it's not inherently wrong to be gay or, or have what they call same-sex desires, but you should not act on them. So mm. the only way that sexuality would be sanctioned would be in a heterosexual Christian marriage between what they would call a natural-born man and natural-born woman. And yeah. we're talking to journalist Sue Yoon about an, an article she wrote in The Guardian about Liberty University and the LGBTQ plus community there. So I really want to touch on the like psychological mental health of a lot of these students. And you really went in depth with one of uh, uh, the students who talked about pastoral counseling after she went slid into a major depression and attempted suicide. Is that something we're often seeing with a lot of these queer students? Yeah, I mean, there. a lot of them had a lot of internalized, I mean, their words, not mine, yeah. internalized homophobia to begin with, um, you know, that they found themselves attracted to people of the same sex um, as they're younger. They found it, quote, again, their words, disgusting. Um, and they tried to, like, talk themselves out of it. They tried to date heterosexually. Um, people told me about cutting. Several people told me about suicide attempts and periods of depression. Uh, one woman told me she she she'd struggled with anorexia her whole life and it was partly because she realized in retrospect it was to kind of kill her sex drive like mm. less calories would mean less libido and you know therefore less attract quote-unquote wrong attraction but isn't the pastoral um, counseling kind of like conversion therapy in a way but they don't call it that yeah so so they the students call it conversion therapy so they okay. they go and it's mostly geared towards men so it, it traditionally it had been called masquerade in the past then it had been called band of brothers currently it's called armor bearers <laughs> and it's a weekly meeting where that's like pretty in a, in a far corner off campus and men go who struggle with same-sex attraction from what i've been told consistently for men who've been through this program for the last 10 years is that it's one it's it's led by a campus pastor who has said that he himself struggles with same-sex behavior now he's you know he married a woman, he has grandchildren. And they talk about instances throughout the week where, you know, they read the Bible and they talk about instances throughout the week where they were attracted to, to other men and, and how they dealt with it. Um, but the thing is, if you're on a deeply closeted ca- campus or environment and, and, and you really have to keep your, your sexuality a secret, you don't know who else might, might also be gay or bi. This is a highway to, to meeting the other guys on campus who are also attracted to men. So a lot of these guys would hook up with each other um, and, and date when they, they weren't in, in the room together. Fascinating. What is your hope from a piece like this? Like, do you want Liberty university to take responsibility for these unfair and outright wrong treatments of students? I think that like, we need to like kind of broaden the definition of what a, what a Christian is like in, Mm. in 2020 in the modern age and like who, and the difference between like, faith and the society and mores that you're born into. And I would hope that with that, that there would be a place for, for students who are gay in the church in general, in the evangelical church in general, and in a school like Liberty, and just more dialoguing about it so that people would know that they're in the midst of people who might not be what they, they you know, yeah. not everyone's heterosexual, you know. Yeah, like, you can and, be queer you know, and have a religious, spiritual connection with God or whatever. You can be involved in that. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and, and also that, like, not everyone, you know, not everyone, even in your shelter community, is going to be the exact same as you. And that should be a template for how you go out in the world. All right. We'll see you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Connie Cooperman was a producer on The Daily Show for 18 years. She's now going back to her documentary roots with a new documentary out now, The Antidote. She joins us next. Don't go anywhere. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. The Antidote is a new documentary that brings together stories of kindness, decency, and the power of community in America. And it's pretty much exactly what we need right now. Or as one child said in the film, we can become mania. Literally, which we've seen happen. An Emmy Award winning Oscar nominated producer, Kahani Cooperman, joins us right now, producer and director of The Antidote. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you both. This is such a powerful documentary, and the timing of it is just perfect, right? (laughs) Uh, You're a former Daily Show producer as well. How did you get involved with this and, and why this? now. So I I was at The Daily Show for 18 years. So people have asked me like, how did you make a leap to doing a documentary about kindness? But I actually started out in documentaries. It's what I love. It's what's in my heart. I love nonfiction storytelling. I love real people's stories. I got hired at The Daily Show originally because of that um, documentary experience that I had. But it turned out to be like, you know, an 18 year detour that was wonderful. But I missed it. And I wanted to go back. 
um, to my roots. And um, so I had made a documentary um, that you mentioned before. It was nominated for an Oscar about the connection between two strangers born 80 years apart who are connected by a musical instrument. And if you look at what that documentary is about, which is about connection that we all can share, it's not that big of a leap to a documentary about kindness. Mm. Um, I made this film with a, a filmmaking partner named John Hoffman. And John Hoffman was able to get some uh, generous funding for an idea of one word, which was just kindness. I had never met him before, but mutual filmmaker friends introduced us. He wanted to make this with a partner. And um, this was 2018. Mm. And I had this, on a personal level, this pervasive feeling of, of civility just crumbling around me. Mm. And I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize the feeling it gave me or the place where I lived and grew up. And um, not that anything was perfect, but it just felt unnerving to me. And I wanted to understand why. So I thought this opportunity to explore kindness and what that really means um, in a documentary uh, would, was a great opportunity. So I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am in love with that story. And I think about like just how transformative this year has been and how everyone has been learning so much, um, especially this country when it comes to just the racial awakenings and the civil injustice. Did you feel any pressure when you're, when you're highlighting these stories and you're doing the storytelling that you're doing? Did you feel pressure of making sure you hit it right and people connect to it, especially when the messaging is kind? That is a great question. So we knew we would have to sort of push back against um, the perception of kindness being soft. Mm. Just how sweet, you know, how nice. But because we actually didn't see it like that. I think kindness can be a, um, a powerful tool that can help change things. And so after doing like a few months of just like reading everything, talking to a million experts and evolutionary biologists and economists and reading poetry and all these Mm -hmm. experts and academics to learn about kindness and empathy and compassion and all of those wonderful things. We were kind of like, our heads were spinning and we're like, let's just put that aside. Mm. And, and we were like, when, when we make this film, what do we want people's takeaway to be in the end? And we actually came up with Um, six questions that sort of became our North Star. And I'll tell you what the questions are. Please tell us. Um, Yes. So they were, how do we raise our children? How do we teach our children? How do we live and work together? How do we treat the sick and the dying? How do we welcome the stranger? And how do we lead? And Mm. we felt like if we could make a film that, weaves together stories that touch on these questions, not one for one, but just that in their own way, touch on these questions that we will have covered the life cycle and the breadth of the experience in the worlds that almost all of us navigate through the throughout nuances. our lives. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, and Kahani uh, Kuberman, the producer and director of The Antidote, wow. joins us right now. With, with that, which is very specific, it's still broad, how did you decide to dig in? Like, where did you begin and uh, what you wanted to cover to demonstrate that? Right. Well, it's a great question. Um, and we were in the middle of this and Charlottesville happened. Wow. And... And Charlottesville, you know, it's not that we were naive and unaware of a lot of unkindnesses in this country, but Charlottesville was this kind of reckoning and stark reminder that so many Americans, everyday Americans, live with unkindnesses every single day. And so we realized that our film had to, had to acknowledge that in addition to answering these questions. So we identified unkindnesses for ourselves that we knew we wanted our film to address. And it's fundamentally unkind to have a, you know, a lack of a safe place to sleep, fundamentally unkind to have a lack of access to healthcare, fundamentally unkind not to earn a living wage, the injustices of homophobia, yeah. racism, and sexism are all fundamentally unkind and we took those fundamental unkindnesses and we looked at our six questions and and together they became they like the lens through which we started searching for stories 
Wow. Okay, well, after this, we want to talk more about the First Baptist Church in Decatur, uh, a once traditional Southern Baptist church that paved a path towards inclusiveness for all of its congregants, including the LGBTQ plus community. It was featured in this documentary. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are back with producer and director of the Antidote documentary, Kahani Cooperman. Uh, now, this is all so powerful. It's all about really kindness and you decided to show that as it relates to LGBTQ plus community. How did you discover the First Baptist Church of Decatur and why did you decide to focus on that within the documentary? It was really interesting because in a way it was the hardest story to find mm-hmm. of all of our stories. Um, we, we, we knew that we wanted to tell the, an LGBT story in the context of, of religion and the church because we were finding so much unkindness in that combination and and we wanted to explore that more we had tried some other stories that were powerful and couldn't get access frankly you know either um there were minors involved or it was we just got we got a few no's and we we kept looking and looking and we came across this the writings of this, um, a man named David Gushy. And his story really, really compelled us. He's a, uh, one of the, le- he's a Christian ethicist and a professor, one of the leading authors um, whose, whose books were studied and found uh, in every seminary, all seminary teachings, who had taught the traditional interpretation of the Bible regarding homosexuality to thousands of people. That's what he thought. And he actually started reading. He studied how Christians behaved during the Holocaust. He started um, putting things together and he's a deep thinker. And he realized that he was mistaken Mm -hmm. and that he had actually been teaching something that, and in his own words, goes against the words of of Jesus. Yeah. I and mean, caused harm. And he yeah. changed his mind. Wow. He changed his mind. And so he did this revolutionary move where he changed his mind and he wrote about it and he became an outcast from the evangelical community. And that's and the that's really the so stories mean. of so many people. I mean, including um I can resonate with that, right? But what is the big takeaway that you want people to to take away from this? Should we be redefining what kindness is moving forward? You know, here's the thing. When we started this in 2018 and with what we what we've been through, you know, the feeling around the country this last year has been really rough. I have to be really honest that for the most part, it was not so hard to find these stories. And when you watch the film, you're going to see we go to nine communities um, all over the country and we use drone shots to kind of fly over the country to give a real feeling of like breath mm-hmm. and we never identify anyone by their names or any organizations by their names. All you ever see is a location where they are. And the idea is that you could really drop in to any community, whether it's a big city or a small town, and you can find everyday people like the people we show in our film making this intentional choice to do things to lift others up. There, there really are everywhere, just no one focuses on it and it's there and and I'm hoping that we've made a film where everyone who watches it can see themselves somewhere in it and be reminded of what we're all capable of and like what connects us. Amazing. Well, Kahani Cooperman, producer and director of The Antidote, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I'm so happy to talk with you both. Now, for more, go to theantidotemovie.com. It's available everywhere to watch right now. Coming up next, MSNBC's map hottie, Steve Kornacki, has a new gig. What he's up to next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how more people are looking towards BDSM to make them feel in control during times like this of uncertainty. Plus, the female-owned company that's looking to compete with White Claw. Love that. We're going to be featuring uh, that company in a bit and her on the show. And our Yes Queen of the Day. Mm-hmm. 
But let's get into some what's trending this hour. Senator David Perdue seemed to acknowledge President-elect Joe Biden's victory in a video recording obtained by the Washington Post on Thursday, speaking just days before President Trump plans to travel to Georgia to campaign for Perdue and fellow Senator Kelly Loeffler. We have the potential, if we have a Senate majority and a majority in the Senate on the Republican side, that Mitch McConnell could indeed negotiate with uh, Biden in a way that we haven't seen in you know, two or three administrations. I think if we keep these two seats, we have an opportunity to do something that maybe we lost in the last administration between Pelosi and Trump. That was just a bridge too far to, to think that we were going to get them to negotiate. But here we have Biden and uh, McConnell, who are ex-colleagues in the Senate, who are known negotiators, who if Biden can get away from this extreme part of his party, he might make some deals. Now, neither Loeffler nor Purdue have acknowledged Biden's victory in public, and both have supported the president's unfounded claims that fraud ruined the election. So now let's move on to this story. A federal judge today ordered the Trump administration to fully restore DACA, the Obama-era initiative that protects undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children from deportation, and now is requiring officials to open the program to new applicants for the first time since 2017. Judge Garifas also instructed officials to grant approved applicants work permits that last for two years instead of the one-year period proposed by the Trump administration over the summer. So that's really good news uh, for everyone and for those who are in DACA right now and applying. Congratulations. Yes, that's wonderful news. And also good news going into the holidays and just the new year so you can relax and not have to worry about everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Now let's move on to the sexy MSNBC political statistician, Steve Kornacki, oh, who has just parlayed his election 2020 popularity into a pretty great lucrative new job. Uh, Kornacki will join NBC Sports Football Night in America as a sports commentator. How about that? I'm so surprised. We were she she was finding the story and she mm-hmm. did not know he was gay. Everyone. Nope. Steve Kornacki I is family. Not. He has a whole husband and everything. I didn't realize, which I also think is cool that, I mean, there's representation on uh, Sunday Night Football. Yeah, that's that's true. That's very true. He's officially joining the program uh, this Sunday night for the Broncos Chiefs game. And the new job is just the latest big win for Kornacki. In addition to his election 2020, as they wrote, tour de force, he also landed a spot on People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive list. You know, honestly, I feel like he is a very attractive man, but we were all going through some type of lapse of judgment or a collective stroke thinking that he was like super sexy in those like that weird, that, those khaki pants. I even thought he was cute. I, You know, I love a good nerd. Exactly. That's the look. I think he's really sexy and it's not just his look, it's his mind, Ryan. And that was what's turning this hour. <laughs> what's happening in <laughs> entertainment news, Ryan? Oh my God. You know what? Just like you, people put their feet in their mouths all the time. Um, But no, here's a serious note. We are getting into the T-Report. Miley Cyrus's sister, Noah Cyrus, she has to apologize because I am so tired of talking about Harry Styles and Candace Owens at this point. But Mm -hmm. she was like trying to um, basically defend Harry Styles against this whole entire thing. And she ended up using a very offensive racially, like, offensive term while defending him um she basically reposted a photo of him um in the dress on her Mm -hmm. insta story and (laughs) she's oh my god she literally was basically giving him a compliment by saying uh he wears this dress better than any of you nappy ass and then, I don't know if I can say that other word, so I'm not going to say it. Um, but this is a screenshot, according to um, TMZ. Now, it was almost up, like, literally 23 hours. It was about to be deleted, but someone on Twitter saw it, and everyone was like, oh, you almost got away with this, <laughs> Noah Cyrus. Well, it sparked outrage online, pr- uh, prompting, oh. of course, an apology from her mm. because using the word nappy or anything like that that's racially charged like that is just not okay. Um, she said, I am mortified that I used a term without knowing the context and history, but I know now I am horrified and truly sorry. I will never use it again. Um, she wrote on her Instagram story, 
But that's also the thing, right? These these young kids on TikTok, they think that this language that they see are just like a part of the new hip things and not that's realizing, yeah. hey, this is not okay. These aren't just cool things you're hearing the rappers say. It's There's offensive. Context. It's offensive when you, as a white woman, still saying these things. And I, I'm, I'm happy. It's unfortunate she's learning that way. And I think that people, there will be many people, white people that learn that through that incident, by the way. Well, because TikTok they, is- they won't know that. Yeah, and TikTok is also just like literally an imitation of black culture in all honesty. Like, I mean, but I will say it's done very good for a lot of black and brown artists where they've gotten to have their music blow up mm -hmm. on there. And there has been some awesome things that have come off from that app. Um, but she also continued just by saying, thank you for educating me. And I in no way meant to offend anyone. I'm so, so sorry. You need to stay at a child's place and go learn. Go read a book, Noah. You got to go listen to Blair Imani. You know, we had her on our show. She has this whole Smarties uh, mm -hmm. program where she like teaches people how to uh, not be offensive or racist or sexist or any of the other isms. Yep. And that's your tea report. All right. Coming up next, the pandemic has many experimenting in the bedroom and some are looking towards BDSM to gain back the control they lost in their lives. We discuss that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Could BDSM be the antidote to our pandemic-fueled loss of control? That's the title of this Mike.com article, and it made us pretty curious to find out more. Back with us is Stephanie Gerlich, who's a master social worker, trained sex therapist, and award-winning author of The Leather Couch, clinical practice with kinky clients. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So can you define first what BDSM is? Yes. So BDSM is an acronym that actually includes three separate sets of acronyms. So there's B and D, which is bondage and discipline. There's DS, which is dominance and submission. And then there's SM, which is sadism and masochism. So BDSM inc includes a wide variety of behaviors, all about giving and exchanging control, sensation, um, things like that. So with the control aspect of this, is that's why people are kind of gravitating towards this new, is it new? Like, obviously it's not new. This has been around forever, but why do you feel like it's popping up now in the sense of related to the pandemic? So there's a certain segment of the population for whom this has always been a part of their life. Um, roughly anywhere from two to 5% of the population is kinky all the time. But what we're noticing is that a lot of people are starting to experiment with BDSM because of the pandemic, because of being in quarantine. For some people, it's just a way of spicing up what's become a really boring stay-at-home year. For other people, they're really looking for ways to experience feelings, experience sensations that they, they haven't been able to over the course of this year. And yeah, for, for some people, control is a big piece of that. This feels like a very chaotic year. So people are looking for ways in which they can experience that sensation of either claiming control over something or giving up control and letting somebody else be in charge for a minute. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So how would you introduce that to a relationship? So say you weren't including BDSM in it and then suddenly you're like, yeah, l let's see what that's all about. So I think having conversations with our partners is always great. And I think asking what they're curious about, ask questions, you know, what is something you've always wanted to try that we haven't yet? Or what is something you've always been curious about learning more about that you don't know much about? What could we learn together? And that opens up a conversation where people can say, you know, I've always kind of been curious about getting tied up. Or I've always wondered what it would be like if I were in charge of you for an entire weekend or any number of scenarios. And so once you kind of ask those open-ended questions, then you can take those answers and start to build a really fun scenario for yourself and your partner that lets you explore those things in a way that feels safe and comfortable for everybody. Now yeah, you, love that. you said the S and M. So it was like, say, what was it again? Sadism and masochism. So giving and receiving intense sensation like pain. Okay, wow. Thank you for breaking that down. I just think if you are in a relationship with someone who one partner's interested in that or something like this, I just, it's it could be difficult trying to get people on board with new things, I feel like, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you even... I don't know. I just, it doesn't really seem like people would be open to it. Or is that a, is that a sign that maybe the other partner should go find someone else or like, how do you handle that? 
So during quarantine, I'm not in, I'm not encouraging anybody to go and find anybody else. We all need to stay home. But I think there's always opportunities within whoever we happen to have around us to explore. And everybody's entitled to their hard limits. Yeah, you know, you mentioned S&M giving and receiving pain. Somebody might say, you know, I don't want to be hurt in sex. That does not sound fun to me. But they might say, but it might be kind of fun to have you tie me up. Mm. Or maybe um, I want to be spanked and that doesn't feel like pain to me. Like that's mm. not the same as like, I want you to do something really intense and scary. Yeah, choke me So out. you kind of say, okay, yeah, exactly. So I think there's room to say, I want to respect your limits, but let's have a conversation about what those limits are and what might be on the table as well. Yeah. Sex therapist Stephanie Gerlich is with us right now. We're talking about BDSM to help us all with, um, you know, our lack of control these days with everything happening. We've been talking about relationships. What if you're single and you want to navigate this? What is your advice on how to do that during this time? So there are lots of opportunities for safe social interaction right now. Obviously, most of those are going to be online. But I have a lot of clients that are turning to things like FetLife, which is effectively kinky Facebook. It's not a dating website. It's a social media website for kinky people. And they are joining some of the groups there and talking to people and exploring their interests in a quarantine safe way. Uh, Meetup.com is a great website to find people that share all kinds of interests from super kinky to super vanilla. If you want a chess club or a spanking club, meetup.org or .com can help you find it. And a lot of those meetups are meeting virtually right now. So maybe in the past, they would meet up once a week at a restaurant. Now they're doing it on Zoom. But those opportunities are there even for single people to start making those connections, having those conversations and exploring the topics that they're curious about. Wow, Amazing. I love that, that. That was sex therapist Stephanie Gerlich. Check out her award-winning book, The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. And of course, for more boundtogethercounseling.com. Thank you so much for being here. Love it. I'll have I'll come back anytime. <laughs> Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It is time for our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. You know, we love to feature inspiring organizations, individuals here as we wrap up the show to uh, let us leave with some positivity. And this story is really inspiring. A single mom basically launched a business from her kitchen. And it's like the new White Claw. It's called Press. It's an alcohol seltzer. And the founder, Amy Wahlberg, joins us here today. Thanks for being here. Oh, my gosh, you guys. Thank you for having me. Honestly, you said yes, queen. And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's just crazy people. But um, yeah, you know, whatever you want to call it. I'm here. I love it. (laughs) Well, you could say, you know, a lot of people could look at someone who's crazy who wants to just start their own business Mm -hmm. on their own with a lot of the challenges. Oh, without a doubt. I have, um, you know, been looked at sideways quite a few times when I started originally, right? Like you're going to do what? But you know what? You press on and no pun intended. Uh, and then, you, you know, you make it happen and you show the naysayers what can actually be done. So it's, it's been a great ride. Yeah. You know, I was raised by a single mother. So I, I am just in awe of oh, how, you know, amazing single mothers are. But what were some of the biggest challenges you face as a single parent when deciding to take on such a huge leap, uh, leap of faith? And how did you you overcome it? Hats off to your mom. Um, and, you know, I always say that um, I'm not only am I a single mom, but I'm a full custody mom. So that means oh. no time off. <laughs> there yes. are no weekends. There are no other other weeks. It is it is go at all times. Um, and so it is challenging for sure. In fact, actually, um, it's kind of what brought me to where I'm at is that I needed to really reinvent myself. Um, I was in corporate America and advertising and um, that nine to five doesn't always lend itself to raising kids with, you know, when you have to leave and so forth um, for whatever it might be. Um, and so I really needed my time to be my own. And, um, and I, you know, was crazy enough to make it happen. And so um, I took a big leap of faith. I'm not a risk taker. And so that was, a, that was probably the biggest jump. But after that, it was just honestly a lot of perseverance. But it was the, because of my little people, as I call them, that I'm here. Because honestly, without them, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have taken this because it is, um, it, you know, it's, it's all and then some. But because of that love and, and that desire to be able to want to provide for them the best I can, um, you know, it's kept me going more than once. Yeah, Press is the only woman-owned seltzer among the top 10 brands out there. What were some of the challenges you faced and 
Like, how did you overcome them? Oh, great question. Honestly, and if I can do it, trust me, you all out there can do it because um, that's just it. You know, we've um, persevered really in this um, really male-dominated industry in particular, more, the, more than anything. Um, a lot of people don't know that all the other seltzers out there are actually large beer houses, right? They're not independent brands. And so, uh, for example, um, White Claw is actually Mike's Hard Lemonade and, and truly a Samuel Adams and Boston beer. And so, but it's that unique perspective that I bring, that female, um, yes. you know, point of view that's really set us apart. And it's, it has set us apart. And that's just it. That's the differentiator. Um, and right now, honestly, there's so much opportunity out there. You know, mm. it, with, with every challenge, there's, there's a silver lining. And so I would just, you know... I guess if I had any advice is just to go for it, you know, and you're never going to know until you do. And so, um, it's worth I mean, try. this country literally just elected the first what, like vice president woman ever in its history. So I love, I think this country loves seeing women in charge. I know I do. Um, but <laughs> tease us with some of the flavors. What are we tasting yeah. here? Oh goodness. I love to tease you with that. Um, so one of our last ones is, um, lingonberry elderflower. Mm. Uh, pineapple basil. You know, that's what sets us apart, really, is, is a lot of unique attributes, I think. But um, our flavor profiles are definitely different. I love um, that. We also have a lime lemongrass and a pomegranate ginger, a blood Ooh. orange chili, which is actually one of my favorites. And then um, our bestseller is uh, blackberry hibiscus. Again, check out Press. It's an alcohol seltzer everywhere right now. We'll be tasting it as we wrap up the show right mm-hmm. now. I mean, it is happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> And that does it for our show and our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. And honestly, I need uh, some press or some type of alcoholic beverage right now. Come on. I mean, I hear you. With you on that one, we could do it virtually. But who knows what's going to happen? Because speaking of Zoom and doing things virtually, on Monday's show, we're going to be getting into what happens when there's a vaccine. We're going to be looking at what's in store for Zoom in a post-pandemic world. Oh, no. Zoom, uh, y'all better figure it out. <laughs> yep. That and more next week. We're also going to be having uh, social media star Glozell on, who has a new series. Oh, yes. Yes. So stay tuned for that. And of course, if you miss any of our shows throughout the week or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. So just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. But right now, we are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you Monday. Have a great weekend. Bye, y'all. Let's Go There with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. The next show, the pandemic was great for Zoom. So what happens when there's a vaccine? We're looking at what's in store for Zoom in a post-pandemic world. Plus, if you missed any of our live shows, don't you worry. We post everything as a podcast. Just search Let's Go There on the radio.com app. Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q. Or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the radio.com app.